Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to that passage in Isaiah 7. Because today we are going to consider together the sign of Emmanuel. Though we only often hear it or sing it around Christmas, the name Emmanuel is so familiar to us. We know, as we heard in the call to worship, how Matthew sees the arrival of Jesus who will save his people from their sins. Matthew sees that as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of a virgin son who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. But if we go back to the origin of the sign of Emmanuel, if we consider the context in which the sign was first given, then our enjoyment of what it means for Jesus to be God with us will broaden and deepen like a stream turns into a river. Because the sign was first given to quit God's people from trusting in false saviors and to assure them of their solid hope in the Lord. That sign of solid hope came, however, during days of deep unbelief. And so we're going to start with this question, the simple question. What was happening when the sign was first given? What was happening when the sign was first given? The, the first thing that you have to understand is that this Ahaz, king of Judah, was a bad, bad man. A bad king. Second Kings 16 tells us what he was like. It describes how this son of David did not walk in David's ways. He ruled during the time of the divided kingdom with Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Also referred to in this passage as Ephraim because they were kind of the leaders in the north. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Judah in the south with a son of David on the throne, was supposed to be the bastion of faithfulness to the Lord and to His covenant. Unlike the breakaway tribes of the north who had rejected the Lord long before. And yet in this time, we're told that Ahaz was no different than the kings in the north. He even burned his sons as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out from before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And it was during this time when Pekah, the king of Israel in the north, joined with Rezin, the king of Syria, and they came together against Ahaz in the south. We're told that they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. What they did manage to do, however, is to grab some land from Ahaz. And Ahaz knew that the threat from these two in the north was only going to grow. As we read, threatened by these two enemies to the north, fear made his heart and the heart of all of his people shake like trees in the wind. What would a faithful son of David do 
What would a good king do to lead his people through this dangerous moment? I think we know the answer. He would cry out to the Lord who had rescued his people again and again from the hands that were too strong for them. He would look to the Lord who had broken Pharaoh. The Lord who had opened paths for his people to pass through the sea. The Lord who shattered the walls of Jericho. The Lord who promised to fight for his people. A faithful king would look to the Lord in faith, even if he did wait for the word of the Lord to instruct him about what to do. And expressing that kind of faith in the face of this dual threat is exactly what Isaiah was encouraging Ahaz to do. Through Isaiah, the Lord invites Ahaz, trust me. He says, be careful, be quiet. Be quiet, echoing the word that Moses spoke to the people on the edge of the Red Sea. You don't have to do anything. Just be quiet and watch how the Lord delivers you. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart faint because of these two. Though Pekah and Rezin threatened destruction, the Lord said, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. This is what the Lord always does. He comes to people who are trapped, helpless, hopeless, threatened, shaking with fear. It doesn't matter if the danger is from outside of you or inside of you, from your circumstances or your own sin. He comes and he says to you, I will save you. Rely on me. He still says this to you. Do you take him at his word? Well, Ahaz didn't. He didn't believe the Lord. And in this context of Ahaz's fear and failure, it's in this context that God graced him again. Coming to him again through Isaiah, giving Ahaz permission to ask for a sign. A sign is a confidence-building, confirmation that what God promises, He'll do. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven, God said. In other words, let it be as supernaturally miraculous as you can imagine. Now we know that asking God for a sign in order to believe His word is ordinarily a bad idea. There are many places where people asking for signs are reprimanded for unbelief. And so Ahaz's seeming piety and refusing to ask for a sign, it seems commendable. But when we remember that this man who is actually quoting Scripture, saying that he won't test the Lord, when we remember that this is the same man who burned his sons to the gods of Canaan, then we can see through the hypocrisy. Isaiah sees through it too, and he berates Ahaz for trying God's patience now as he has throughout his reign. And so, since Ahaz won't ask, the Lord himself says that he will give the sign. The sign will not be for Ahaz alone, it's for all the people. The you, there in verse 14, actually shifts to the plural. 
This is a sign that will be for all of the people. And the sign is a boy. A boy born of a young woman and named Emmanuel. Now right away, we need to acknowledge something. That many in the past have understood this sign to be pointing to Jesus only. Jesus is understood to be the fulfillment of this promised boy. And of course he is. Of course he is. We'll talk about that in a bit. But even if, even if we can say that Jesus is the fulfillment of this sign, it would be a mistake to say that he is the only fulfillment of this sign. Because the text shows us that there was a fulfillment, a nearer fulfillment too, a boy born in Isaiah's own day that fits this description. Look with me at the details of verses 14 to 17. They're going to help us answer this second main question that we have. What did the sign mean in Isaiah's day? What did the sign mean in Isaiah's day? Well, first, the boy who served as a sign would be born of a virgin, which is how most of our English translations uh, translate the Hebrew word Alma. That word, however, Alma, simply refers to a young woman of marriable age, and it only needs to carry that meaning even here in this passage. Of course, obviously, in Matthew's gospel, he won't fail to see Mary, who's never known a man. He won't fail to see Mary as the ultimate Alma and miraculous mother. But the word itself does not demand a miracle in Isaiah's day. And when we consider the issue of time, we can see that it, even a child ordinarily conceived could fulfill this sign. Because if you hold together how Quickly, Isaiah expects the sign to appear with what happens immediately after this in chapter 8. Then it actually seems most likely that Isaiah's own son is the sign. Listen to Isaiah from chapter 8. And I went to the prophetess, to his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. For, he says, before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. That's the same idea that's present in our passage. Before the boy reaches this age of clear speech, which would be about the same time that he begins to know right from wrong, good from evil. Before the boy reaches that age, the threat of Damascus, which is Syria, and Samaria, which is the northern tribes of Israel, those threat will be ended by the king of Assyria. But there's more. In 8.8, this same son of Isaiah seems to be called Emmanuel, a second name given to this boy. 
And during his young life will come the days of Assyria's king arriving like a flood, shattering all resistance, even though the assurance remains in 810 that God is with us. Add to this the fact that just a few verses further on, uh, Isaiah refers to both of his sons as signs and symbols in Israel. And it's hard to escape the idea that Isaiah's son was the first sign of Emmanuel. If you think about it, it only makes sense that God's sign would mean something to the people who first heard it. If the sign is only referring to Jesus, it would have been functionally meaningless to the people in, who first heard it. But it meant something to them, even if the greater fulfillment was still waiting for Jesus. And so the sign of this boy, most likely Isaiah's son, it points, to the people, it points the people to their hope in the Lord. Because 7.16 tells us before he's old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, just a few years' time, the land of the two dreaded kings will be deserted. Watching this boy grow from infant to toddler to little boy Ahaz and all of God's people could have known that their rescue from that threat was drawing near. They only had to wait for the Lord. But before they could interpret this sign of a boy as being all good news, the prophet continues in verse 17. As was already hinted at, the Lord will bring on Ahaz and his people and on David's house calamitous days. Dark days like those when the kingdom of Israel was first divided. And that darkness was going to arrive in the person of the king of Assyria. And now at this point we have to talk about Assyria. Because to us, this talk of the king of Assyria might seem like it's coming out of the blue, but it wouldn't seem so to Ahaz. And that's because in the face of this threat of the two bullies to his north, Ahaz, out of, acting out of, a, out of deep unbelief, was coming up with his own plan for rescue. To defend himself against the two bullies in the north, he thought it would be smart to become friends with the biggest kid in the neighborhood, a king who had a habit of gobbling up other kings and kingdoms like I do M&Ms. And so although the Lord offers himself as Ahaz's rescuer, Scripture tells us what happens next. Again, this is from 2 Kings 16. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, 
and he killed resin. Using gold from the Lord's own temple in Jerusalem, Ahaz bought protection from Assyria. Make no mistake, Ahaz was acting in faith. Only his faith was directed away from the Lord and toward Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. And Judah was saved. Kind of. By Assyria's sword, the threat from the north was ended. And in just a few more years, the northern kingdom of Israel would fall to Assyria. But what happens when a king who gobbles up kingdoms, turns his attention to you. What happens when the very thing that you trusted turns into a new source of fear? And it's here that we have to return to the sign of Emmanuel and what it meant what he meant for God's people back then. Because in the words of one writer, while Ahaz calls in an army, God looks to the birth of a child. And if we're asking the question, what did the sign mean in Isaiah's day? Then the sign of the boy would point God's people to two simultaneous truths. First, the boy's life pointed them to the truth that the Lord is powerful to save. He relieves his people from fear with his powerful presence. But second, the boy's life pointed them to the truth that the Lord judges unbelief. Ahaz's trust in Assyria over his God would not be ignored. And so, the sign of of the boy's life was telling them that the king of, the, of Assyria would be both God's agent of deliverance and God's agent of judgment. That's actually hinted at in 7.15. Admittedly, this bit about the boy eating curds and honey when he matures, admittedly, it's hard to understand. On the one hand, it speaks of God's provision. Curds and honey would be hard to come by if you're shut up in the walls of a city under siege. And so there's assurance here that the growing boy will not live under the threat of war from Pekah and Rezin. But on the other hand, curds and honey would be the most readily available food in a land that is depopulated, unworked, untilled, which it would be when the king of Assyria carried off most of its inhabitants. And so this sign of Emmanuel was actually a dual sign, meant to both reassure and to warn. It reassured because God was still committed to his people. The threat they faced would not be the end of their story because God was still with them, still willing to save them. But like I showed the kids, the rope that Ahaz hoped would be his lifeline would actually become the source of his ruin. Because although the Lord is merciful and gracious, 
Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, was not. And from this moment on, the kingdom of Judah would always, always live under the shadow of foreign power, even up to the day when they themselves were conquered by the king of Babylon. What's so striking in this passage is how God used the very thing that Ahaz trusted to both deliver Judah and judge Judah. Assyria, yes, removes the short-term threat of Pekah and Rezin, but becomes itself an even greater threat to God's people. The biting flies are replaced with murder hornets. So you can imagine how God's people must have received this sign of a boy. It had to humble them. If they, if their own hearts were hoping that Assyria would bring the rescue that they needed, then this sign had to convict them and lead them to humble repentance for sending their faith in the wrong direction. But at the same time, the sign of Emmanuel must have filled them with hope. It must have instilled hope in their hearts, hope and longing. Hope and longing that was met and encouraged by the words of Isaiah himself. Because if his boy was the first fulfillment of Emmanuel, fulfilling the initial sign, then Isaiah also spoke of another. Because although the details of Isaiah 7 and 8 can describe Isaiah's son, the promises of chapters 9 and 11 look far beyond him. Far beyond him to another child born, to another son that was given. And this later sun will be the great light dawning on those in darkness. He'll be the source of exceeding joy and oppression breaking. And the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this child will not be the son of Isaiah, but rather a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Though the tree of David's family at this point is broken down and rotten and cut off, this child will become a fruitful branch coming up from the roots of the tree. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This later son to be given will be the king that Ahaz, Ahaz never was. 
and following Jesus and seeing what Matthew saw, you can understand why he would recognize Jesus as the true Emmanuel, much more than just a boy born at the right time. Jesus is God with us, saving his people and reigning over us. Jesus is God with us, God fighting for his people by entering into our troubles, into our pain and our suffering. He's God fighting for us, as we sang before, as he fought for breath, as he died on the cross. And Jesus remains a sign because just like the first Emmanuel, Jesus' life points to the truth that God is powerful to save us from the greatest threat that any of us face. And it's not from outside of us. He's able to save us from the threat of our own sin. And if he can save us from that, how much more can we expect him to save us from everything else? His death that paid for our sins and his resurrection that brings us into life in him, they relieve us from our fear of anything. The fear of death that had us shaking like trees in the wind has been removed by Jesus because he tasted death for us and conquered it for us. And as you and I cling to him, our risen Lord, he lifts us out of the depths so that even now, the scripture says, we are seated with him in the heavenly places above all fears. But if Jesus remains a sign for us that God is with us to save, we must also see that Jesus remains a sign for us that the Lord judges unbelief. We know how easy it is to make up our own means of rescue. Like Ahaz, we're always looking for something to get us out of the mess that we're in. Maybe this mess is the hard circumstances that are caused by somebody else. Hard circumstances that we have to live in. Or maybe it's a mess of our own making, the overflowing consequences of our own sin. Either way, we know what it means to be in a bad spot, needing rescue but trying to do it ourselves. And it's here, it's here that the sign of Emmanuel meets us. And Jesus himself invites us to rely on him because the other things... The other things that we cling to hoping to make our lives tolerable will not be able to do it. And we might just find that they, make, that they become the source of our next trouble, a bigger trouble. So here in this Advent season, we still need the sign of Emmanuel. But the gospel assures us that just as Jesus was born Emmanuel, God with us to save us from our sins, Christ who died for our sins rose again and he remains Emmanuel. Have you ever noticed how Matthew chose to bookend his gospel with the promise of God's presence with us? 
What was it that Jesus said to his disciples after he was raised? Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The hope that we have as we cling to Jesus is that he was and is our Emmanuel, saving us, not merely saving us from the geopolitical threats or bad political leaders or bad circumstances. He is saving us now from our deadly slavery to sin so that he can reign over us as our good and faithful king. And because he is still with us to save, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? Amen. Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this sign. Father, protect us from unbelief. Holy Spirit, open our eyes again every day to turn away from the lesser things, from the false saviors that we are so tempted to trust in, the things that we are so easily to that we so easily grab onto because they feel real and they feel tangible and we can see them and we can touch them. Father, deliver us from the falseness of these things and turn our eyes upward again to see our crucified and risen King who is with us to save us in His Spirit. Father, we ask that this hope of Emmanuel would fill our hearts even today, even this week, as we step into this Advent season. Let us remember it and live in this hope so that we might also be those who show the hope of Christ to others. Father, let the light of Christ, the light of Emmanuel, shine through us so that many may see and fear you. This we pray in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.